This episode of Life Stories has been brought to you by BuzzFeed Books. Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Rebecca Mead. Her story is called My Life in Middlemarch, and it's a combination of memoir and, I guess, literary criticism and literary biography. Yeah, yeah. that's... Very well put. Thank you. It all starts with George Eliot's Middle March and your lifetime of reading and rereading it. So let's go back to the very first time that you ever read Middle March and tell us about it. Yeah, the first time I read Middle March was when I was 17 years old and I was living in a provincial seaside town in England where I grew up and I was studying for the entrance exams to university and I was so seized by it and captivated by it, and I especially identified with the character of Dorothea Brooke, who was this young woman yearning for a more significant existence, as was I, <laughs> desperate to get away from where I lived and where I was from and wanting to get out in the world and do something, although, like Dorothea, I didn't know exactly what that was going to be. So I read it first when I was 17, and then I've read it about every five years or so since, and every time I go back to it, my relationship to it has evolved, and I see different things in it, and it brings new things to me every time. As you were reading it that first time, as you say, you were heading off to university, and as you describe it, you were ready for adult literature. I think your line is, I was eager to become well-read. And Middlemarch, it seemed, was not only something that you loved, it had a reputation that attracted you to the prospect of reading it as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I knew that critics regarded it, some critics regarded it as the greatest novel written in the English language. And I wanted to know why, and I wanted to be one of those people that understood why, and to be among those who appreciated its greatness. Growing up in England, especially, Middlemarch is sort of a summit of English literature, that it's one of those peaks that you attempt to surmount. So it was important not just to read it, but I wanted to have read it. You know, I wanted to have conquered that particular summit. Dorothea was sort of the first character that you latched onto in your initial readings. But as you were rereading it over time, what changed for you and, and who did you end up sort of gravitating more towards in, in terms of identifying or being able to empathize? Yeah, different stages of my life, different characters, stories came much more into relief. I mean, when I was a young person, when I was reading it, not just as a teenager, but in my 20s, I was very consumed with the stories of the love affairs and who's going to marry whom and where is everybody going to go. By the time I was reading it in my 30s, the story of Dr. Tertius Lydgate, who is the young doctor who comes to, moves to Middlemarch, aspiring to make great advances in medicine, you know, he he's fails in his attempts to you know, discover new things uh, medically, and he ends up marrying the town beauty and having a practice based upon treating people for gout, which is a rich person's disease. And I felt much more vividly when I was in my 30s and establishing my own career and was I going to do what I had hoped to do or achieve or would I would I achieve what I what I hoped and aspired to do his kind of professional ambitions and then the failures of those was spoke much more to me and now that I'm in my mid 40s I'm the same age that Edward Casabon the dry dusty scholar whom Dorothea marries to her cost in the, at the beginning of the book, is a figure who, when I first read Middlemarch, seemed kind of old and 
repellent in so many ways. And you know, he still has lots to be said against him. But now that I'm the age that he is, I feel much more sympathetic towards his plight and his own sense of failure in everything that he is trying to do. Yeah, you write about that sense how when you're in your late teens and early or even mid-twenties, the idea of being in your mid-forties seems almost impossibly old. Yeah. Then you hit your mid-forties and you still feel this sense of incompleteness, that things are still in progress, rather than that youthful notion of like, oh, well, I'm going to I'm gonna have it all down pat when I'm, when I'm in my forties. Everything's going to be laid out and it's going to be great. It's like, you're still very much, or we're all still very much works in progress at, the, at this age. Yeah, I think that when you're young, you tend to think that grown-ups have grown up. And once you're a grown-up, you realize that you're always still growing up and it's, it's never over. And of course, the distance between 45 and 25 looks much shorter when you're looking at it from the end, from the 45-year-old end than it does when you're 25 years old. I have much more sympathy now towards people that I knew who were in their mid-40s when I was in my mid-20s than I had at the time, for sure. Now, as you are rereading Middlemarch over the years, what initially drew you to the idea of trying to set out or, or set down what it is that this book has meant to you and how it's shaped you? Well, I didn't come to that idea until I was, you know, in my early 40s, really. I didn't I didn't read this. I haven't spent the last 30 years sort of reading this with a plan that I, at this age I would write a book about it. I'm not that focused or directed or whatever, but I, I had sort of reached my early 40s, and the book began with a piece that I wrote for The New Yorker, which was an essay about George Eliot, and it was specifically investigating the source of a quotation which is often attributed to George Eliot. It's never too late to be what you might have been. And I believed, and I still do believe, that she didn't say that. It doesn't appear to be in, in, in any of her books, and I've not been able to find an original source for it anywhere. And when I was 42 or so, when I was thinking about doing this, I felt very strongly that it was too late for certain things to happen. I mean, one does at that age, you know, it's too late to have more kids, or it's too late to marry the person that you didn't marry earlier in your life, or, you know, you realize that there are things that you haven't done that are going to remain undone. So it was in that mood, that mood of reflection, that I wanted to go back to Middlemarch and to think about the ways in which it had influenced me and had shaped my understanding of myself and my own life. It seemed like, you know, the middle of life is a good point for reflection, to look backwards and hopefully look forwards to what remains. In the process, it becomes not just about the influence of the novel. I mean, as you said, this started out with an attempt to track down a George Eliot quote. And as your book plays out, George Eliot's life story becomes a key part of the narrative as well. I had read the first biography I read of George Eliot when I was a teenager and I was sort of overawed by how brilliant she was. And, and then I read subsequent biographies of her as they were published throughout the years. But in order to write my book, I, I didn't just read other people's biographies of her. I went back and did primary research of my own. So I went back and looked at letters that she had written and journals that she'd kept and even went back and looked at manuscripts you know, in the British Library, the manuscript of Middlemarch. And I went and investigated the lives of people who had been close to her during the time period that she was writing Middlemarch so that I could get some ideas about who she was interacting with and what she was thinking of and what the influences were that were feeding into this novel as in the, in the years in which she was writing it. And what would you say is the, maybe the most surprising thing that you learned or, or realized as you were doing that research? I had 
always known that George Eliot had lived with George Henry Lewis. They'd lived together for 24 years. They weren't able to get married because he was married to somebody else and he couldn't get a divorce. So I knew that she'd had this long-time relationship. But what I hadn't really registered is that he was the father of three sons whom she helped raise and support. And what was the most sort of uncanny moment in doing my research was noticing that and realizing that I too had married a man who came with three sons who were more or less the age of Lewis's children when um, George Eliot came into their lives. My husband also had a sweet called George, which is, you know, another level of strangeness. You know, there's, so there's a, there's a kind of uncanny quality to that, perhaps. But what I think it gave me in writing about George Eliot was an entry point into what her experience must have been like to take on these children and to suddenly have this unconventional family that she had not had before. People often talk about George Eliot as a childless author. She wasn't. She had stepchildren. And having stepchildren is, is not not having children. Um, and so I want, so I feel that that, that uh, experience of mine is my way of reading her life. And it may not be everybody's, but it certainly was a big influence on how I how I thought about her and what she must have experienced. There's something that you say when you're describing that in the book, and you say it's something like you know maybe it's not that a book teaches us how to live our lives, but that our life experiences can teach us how to read a story. I don't think Middlemarch tells you how to live your life. You know, it, thank God it doesn't. You know, it's not a set of uh, instructions. It's not a, a self-help book. And it would be bizarre to try to read it and follow its rules or something. But I do think that, you know, our own life experience obviously informs how we read. And it means that our readings of different novels through different times become richer and change. And that's the, the measure of a great work of literature is that you can go back to it time again, time and again and it will tell you something new, not just about what's in it, but what's in you. Are there other books that, if you had not chosen to write this book about Middlemarch, what are some of the other leading candidates that might have been like, a, you know, oh, viewing my life through the framework of there's nothing that comes close. I mean, there are other books that mean a great deal to me, and there are particularly poetry that I read, read that I was young that sort of runs through my head often, and there are other novels that I love, but there's nothing that has played this role in my life where I've felt, you know, like a sort of craving every five years or so that, oh, God, it's time to read this again. And what are you taking away from it in your most recent readings? What are the things that you're finding as points of sympathy or, or characters that you're now identifying with yeah. reading it this time around? What I realized when I was reading it, you know, in my early 40s, at the beginning of the project of writing this book, Fred Lindsay and Mary Garth, who are the couple who betroth themselves to each other when they're teenagers, or not teenagers, children, with a, a ring from an, um, from an umbrella, and they are this couple that Fred knows he wants to marry Mary, and Mary knows she wants to marry Fred, but he has to prove himself as a worthy man before she'll do it. And their love story is beautifully tender at the end, and they're resolved, and they, they come together, and it's sort of the one conventionally happy happy ending, as it were, of a, the, the, of a marriage coming at the end of the novel, these characters having worked their way towards it. When I read Middlemarch as a teenager... 
I had almost no interest in Fred and Mary. They seemed to me just... It's, there was nothing that appealed to me less than the idea of marrying somebody that I've known my whole life or the boy next door. And Mary, who I now recognize is marvelously sardonic, I thought of as sort of a bit dreary and dutiful. And I didn't see her, her value. And I didn't understand that relationship, their marriage. I wasn't interested in it. By the time I read it in my 40s, early 40s, I read it and, and thought, oh my God, this is my parents. You know, my parents who met when they were 14 and 15 and married when they were 21 and who were married for 60 years until my father died when I was halfway through writing the book. And the idea, when I reflected back on my parents' marriage and this lifelong commitment and this lifelong love, what it would be to know somebody from childhood and to grow up with them and to grow old with them, for all the love affairs that I've had and all the experiences that I've had, I'll never have that. You know, that's the one thing for sure I'll never experience. I look on it as, rather than as I did when I was a child, looking on it as unglamorous and uninteresting and uninviting, I now look on that lifelong accomplishment with awe and, and wonder. It's interesting that you should say that, you know, you are initially viewed it as sort of uninteresting and unappealing, and that you write about this attempt editors made to introduce young readers to Middlemarch specifically by extracting just the Fred and Mary story and dumping just about everything else about the, the novel, trying to pitch it to, you know, roughly the equip, the modern equivalent of junior high students. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's a very funny book that somebody published, and I forget what year, whether it was the 40s or the 50s, but sort of around then, a book called Mary Garth uh, that is just the story of Mary extracted, and Dorothea is mentioned in passing and Edward Curzon I'm not sure he even exists in it I don't it's it's a very peculiar piece of work with this uh, and 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 the the sort of wonderful authorial voice and irony of George Eliot is largely stripped away too so it's a very peculiar condensation of Middlemarch it didn't take off obviously otherwise it would still be in print you know I was as I say 17 when I first read Middlemarch and I was too young for a lot of it I loved it but the wonderful thing is that reading it later makes me realize all the treasures in it that I had not appreciated the first time. You mentioned her voice as one of those elements that stands out in, in the whole project. And having immersed yourself in not just this novel, but her whole life and her other writings, did you find at any point traces of Eliot's voice creeping into or, or even perhaps wanting to creep into your, your own voice? That's been going on for 30 years. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel I, I love her. I love her writing, the way that she writes, and I feel like I've learned so much from her sentence structure, the way that she will set something up and then subvert it with this sting in the tail at the end of a very long sentence. I've learned writing for The New Yorker that I often have to cut my sentences in half because I've made them of an Eliot-esque length. I mean, I hope that my book isn't doesn't read like a pastiche or a, an attempt to assume her authorial majesty, but I'm definitely influenced by her voice, and I feel it as a very intelligent companion to my own writing. One of the other perspectives that you talk about in terms of appreciating Millmarch is the distinction between realist literary fiction and and more conventional fiction where and, and this ties into what we were talking about the Fred and Mary story in that that particular thread is very conventional in how it plays out 
but you write about how one of the marking points of realist fiction of the type that Elliot was doing in Middlemarch is the curveballs, the unexpected, the, the sort of like the non-genre specific developments. Right, which is the way life is too. She was writing with a full knowledge and comprehension of the genres that were current at the time. In fact, um, she, she wrote an essay, I think you quote the title, was, was Silly Novels by Silly Novelists. Yes, yeah, <laughs> Silly Novels by Lady Novelists. Mm-hmm. And it, this she wrote this before she began writing fiction herself. It was sort of, in a way, we can now see it as a warming up exercise to figure out what it was that she didn't want to do. And it's a fantastic essay. It's, it's very acerbically dissecting these awful novels that were popular at the time. One of the, the other wonderful things that I discovered while researching this book was I went back and read, I'd read some of her essays, but I hadn't read all of them. And to go back and read what she was writing before she became a novelist, the journalism that she wrote, which was sort of mostly in her early 30s, these essays, critical essays and so on. And she was so cutting. I mean, she was so brutal in her analysis of, not brutal because it was so precise, but she she was devastatingly good and devastatingly critical. The voice of those essays is so different from the kind of large, magnanimous authorial voice that we associate with the later novels. And there's something sort of thrilling to see that she had this period of kind of sharpening her knives and seeing what she could do and figuring out what it was that she wanted to do for herself. And that plays into so many contemporary literary debates that are going on today, whether it's the literary versus commercial fiction debate or the debate over snark in nonfiction writing these days. Eliot's writing proves as a great example of how these are perennial debates. They are, yes. I, I feel that, you know, I, I, I think she probably would have tried to stay out of the debates as much as possible and just get on with doing her work, which is, you know, maybe the best argument for lots of us. But, yeah, no, these things didn't, you know, they don't, they didn't begin with us and they probably won't go away. So now that my life in Middlemarch is out, what are you planning to immerse yourself in as a subject next? Well, I have to get back to work at the New Yorker. <laughs> do some, do some more work, do some work there. I'm beginning to think of a new book, but at the moment it's only... Most of what I'm doing consists of ordering books on Abe Books and putting them on a shelf where they sit, you know, saying to me, come on, come on, get on with it, get on with it. So I'm I'm starting to think about what the next thing is. But I hope that whatever I do will allow me to have the kind of wonderful experience that writing this book was. I mean, this was, it was, I I loved going off and doing this, this kind of combination of literary research and reporting and biography and I also loved having the opportunity to draw on my own story and my own and to use my imagination in a way that I had not you know that I don't generally use at least not to that extent in the journalism that I do so it was a really it was a really kind of wonderful world to immerse myself in and I hope that whatever I do next I will have that immersion again. Well while we're waiting for that we can look for your byline in the New Yorker And right now, there is My Life in Middlemarch. I've been talking with the author, Rebecca Mead. I'm Ron Hogan, and you have been listening to Life Stories. If you're subscribed to us through iTunes, thank you for that. And if you're not subscribed, it's very easy to do. And once you've done that, if you want to take a moment to rate and review the podcast, that would be really great, and it might help other people find it more readily as well. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode soon. Take care.